Okay. Tonight, we're going to finish finish up just a couple of details about ecclesiology, and then we're going to move into pneumatology. If you did not get them, there's a new set of notes on the back table at the left end, notes on pneumatology. Those notes will carry us through the rest of the term. I believe this is our seventh night, which means we have three more nights after this. Okay. Let's just finish up a few things we didn't get to last week. Let's talk a little bit about the purpose of the church. What's the church for? I think everybody would agree that the simple answer is that the church exists to glorify God. And Ephesians chapter 3 is very important in that matter. We'll come back to that in a few moments. And the question might be, how does the church glorify God? Any suggestions? Just throw some ideas out. What do we do that glorifies God? Okay, we worship Him. Okay, we proclaim Him. Evangelism. What else? Okay, we reflect His love to the world. Great. You're hitting all the things that I'm hitting here. We talk to you know, about our needs. Okay. We, that's right. We seek, we, we demonstrate our dependence upon him and we allow him to meet our needs. Okay. There are probably a lot of reasons that we could come up with. These are some of the ones that I came up with and they match many of the things you said. We bring him praise and worship. We function as the bride of Christ and that's an interesting one because we don't always bring him praise and glory in the way that we do that, do we? It's possible that when we are walking in sin and ineffectiveness, we're actually not glorifying him, but bringing shame to his name. Now, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, is a very important passage. Let's just hit that very quickly to remind ourselves of the special role that we have. And Paul calls this God's God's eternal purpose. He says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, <clears throat> this is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see. By the way, if your Bible says all people, cross it out. The word people isn't there. To make all or everyone see what is the, the administration or the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. And now you'll see why it doesn't say all people. Verse 10, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in verse 10, who are these principalities and powers in the heavenly places? They're angels. Did, did we talk about this last week? We did? Okay. They're angels and both good and fallen angels. Okay? And Paul says this is God's eternal purpose for the church. That doesn't mean there aren't other purposes. But he emphasizes this one very strongly. That the church exists... Yeah, we did talk about this last week. To be a demonstration to the invisible, angelic audience of his manifold wisdom. 
Okay. Uh, another purpose, we show that the Father sent the Son by demonstrating unity and love. And that's probably why Paul dedicates so much of the book of Ephesians to the topic of how to walk in unity. Have you ever noticed that? Chapters 4 and 5 are all about unity in the body. Okay, now, what are some purposes of the church? We've kind of talked about this. I just made a list. Fellowship, mutual exhortation, edification, discipline, and discovering, cultivating, and exercising spiritual gifts, corporate worship, and joint efforts in fulfilling the Great Commission. You've all brought these up already. And this, this stuff we're going over here is really quick, and it's very much uh, simple stuff. I hope it's all reviewed to you. What does the church do? Well, I would argue that the church functions in three different spheres. You can think of them as directions. Godward, inward, and outward. Okay? Um, Godward, what do we do? We worship. God and communicate his worth to us and we serve him that demonstrates in action what he is worth to us. Now, it's interesting what we generally call worship, you know, and we have professional worship leaders today in the church, which is not something that turns me on. We see that word worship and what do we think of? Or what do most people think of? Sunday morning, singing, okay? Well, the word worship actually comes from worth-ship, a demonstration of God's value to us. In English, it comes from that. And I really think that service is what really demonstrates how we value God. It's what we do, not what we say, that demonstrates how much he means to us. Now, GC there, service in includes the Great Commission being a blessing to the world, loving the brethren, and pursuing sanctification. And it's interesting that many of these things are going to appear in our discussion of what we do inward and outward. Okay? Um, inward, fellowship, instruction, edification, and equipping. Those last three things are strongly emphasized in Ephesians chapter 4. And 2 Timothy 3.16-17 that we've looked at before emphasizes the foundation of all these ministries is the Word of God. And last word, outwardly, the primary duty of the church outwardly is the proclamation of the gospel and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Now we might add in there praying, we might in there add in there service to the outside world, there are other things we could add there, but I think that's our primary duty. And that leads to the last question that we're going to deal with here. Is it the church's job to change society? You're all grinning. Yeah, sure you could. Sure you could. Now this, this is a very current topic, actually. And you've all heard of liberation theology, right? Liberation theology claims that it's the duty of the church to transform society as a whole, primarily by bringing in justice and righteousness, by relieving suffering and distributing wealth 
equitably. Is this theology valid? Does this come from Scripture? No, it doesn't. Okay? It does not for many reasons, including, number one, the church is called to act as God's agents in the redeeming of individuals, not society. Okay? Secondly, this world, this cosmos, this system in which we live is condemned and it is not redeemable. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 to 12 says it's going to be destroyed by God and replaced. Thirdly, liberation theology is based on a faulty identification of the church with Israel and an incomplete and twisted application of the Old Testament prophets' messages to Israel. Glenn and Mary, you probably ran into liberation theology in your ministry in Latin America, right? And their two fa- their favorite books are Micah and Amos, right? And they go there because Micah and Amos blast the people for their economic sins. Well, and the whole the whole idea of the years of jubilee and mm-hmm. seven years and all that was a, a redistribution of, of land back to where it was supposed to be. Where but it was. but that's the but key. That's right. It was only for Israel, and it had to do with the distribution that had done, been done by God originally. And it was never done by force. Um, so, you know, liberation theology is just is way off base. Liberation theology also wrongly interprets and applies Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 47 and 4, 32 to 36. Those are the two passages that talk about believers sharing their goods among each other. And they would argue that that's Christian communism and that's the way that the church should work. What they were doing there was something for a very special situation where people were kicked out of the synagogue and unable to participate economically in their society and they had no choice but to sell their capital assets, Bruce, in order to keep going. The fact of the matter is that Scripture recognizes and defends private ownership of property and even requires it because the very idea that you could choose to give willingly of what you have assumes that you have something to give. Now here's a last question for thought. Can you detect liberation theology ideas at work in our present administration's political agenda? I'm serious when I ask that question. Think back to Reverend Wright's. Yeah, think back. What did this guy sit what did our president sit under all those years? He sat under black liberation theology. And he is implementing many of the ideas of that faulty theology. Okay, that's the end of our discussion of ecclesiology. And what we're going to do is we're going to move on to pneumatology. I think the stuff that I have here will go very quickly. And if we end early, we'll take our break early and then we'll jump into eschatology because we've got a lot to cover tonight. All right? Topics we're going to cover in pneumatology are the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, the nature and person of the Holy Spirit. We're going to do these first two very quickly because much of that will be review. We'll talk about the works of the Holy Spirit and special issues regarding the Holy Spirit. And those will include tongues and sign gifts and I can't remember what the other one is. 
But that stuff will be kind of interesting, I think. Okay. The Holy Spirit and the Trinity. We all understand that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal persons within the triune God. Remember we talked a while ago about the doctrines of the eternal generation of the Son and the eternal procession of the Spirit. you remember those? You may not remember those. At the time, I said, I don't think that they're significant doctrines and I'm not sure I even believe them anyway. You may want to look those up sometime. I think those doctrines are a little bit dangerous because they suggest that the Father somehow is more primary within the Trinity than the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I don't think that's true. Um, going on, by voluntary agreement, the three members of the Trinity operate in functional subordination with the Father sending the Son and the Son sending the Holy Spirit. Does that mean the Holy Spirit is the low man on the totem pole? It doesn't. It doesn't mean that any more than the fact that the man is the head of the family means that the wife is more insignificant than the husband. Now this structure that they have arranged among themselves not only provides order for their redeeming work, but it also provides a model for functional subordination in the society of the creature who bears his image, and that is us. And I really think at any time you get into a discussion of headship and hierarchy and biblical roles in the family and in the church, the place that you should start is here. Okay? What chapter in the New Testament makes that connection between the hierarchy within the Trinity and the hierarchy within the family? Does anybody remember? Ephesians 5 has some of it. I have another one in mind. How about 1 Corinthians 11? The discussion of head coverings for women, and it says the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is the Father. Okay? There, those things are linked together in such a way that you can see that the subordination of the Son to the Father is a model that we're following when women submit to the headship of men. Okay. Now, I didn't do any of the bounce-in things here. Um, let's talk a little bit about the nature and person of the Holy Spirit. And we'll go over this quickly because I don't think any of you have any doubts about this. The evidence of Scripture that's supposed to is, is that the Holy Spirit has all the attributes of God. And those attributes relate both to his deity and his personality. And I put it a P or a D in parentheses after each one of these characteristics to indicate which of these qualities, divinity or personality, these, uh, these attributes speak of. His intellect speaks of his personality because only a person can have intellect. Boy, oh, i got a lot of typos here. His omniscience speaks both of his deity and his personality, right? Because it has to do with knowledge and an extent of knowledge that only God has. His emotions speak to his personality. His sovereign will speaks to both. Man, there are a lot of typos here. His, <laughs> his omnipresence speaks to his deity. His omnipotence and creativity, they, they probably apply to both. I think I'd add P there. His truthfulness 
speaks to his deity and his personality because only God is completely truthful. The fact that God is alive and that he has the the ability to impart life speaks to both his deity and his personality. His eternality speaks to his deity. His holiness at least speaks to his deity. You might argue that it speaks to his personality. And his quality of love obviously speaks to both. Now, going on, the evidence of Scripture is also that the Holy Spirit performs those actions that God performs. And, you know, we've got D and P there. Again, I won't go through those in detail. The Holy Spirit was an agent in the Incarnation. He imparts life in regeneration. He inspired the Scriptures. Notice I didn't say that he inspired the writers. Were the writers inspired? Not in the biblical sense, right? Remember the distinction? It's the scriptures that are God-breathed. The writers were agents in the production of God-breathed scripture, but they weren't inspired. Okay? The Holy Spirit teaches, he testifies, he convicts, he intercedes with omniscience. That's an interesting one. That passage in Romans 8 where it says he intercedes, but he doesn't just intercede. He knows what we need even though we don't know it. He commands and he loves. All those things indicate that the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, the only reason I'm hitting this is that there are Christians who don't think that the Holy Spirit is a person. What do they think he is? Force. A force? An influence? Yeah, a ghost, but not a personal kind of thing. Some people even think he's a substance. I used to have this transparency. I haven't put it on computer yet. It shows a faucet running down into somebody's head, and he's slowly filling up. And there are some people who think of the filling of the Spirit in the sense that a human being is like a jug, and the Spirit is like a substance you pour in, and the more that you pour in, the more filled you are. And that's an unfortunate carrying of a biblical metaphor or picture way too far. The Holy Spirit is a person. Now here's an interesting argument for his personality. The evidence of scripture is also that he is a personal object, meaning that others do to him things that can only be done to a person. Okay? The Holy Spirit can be grieved We'll talk about that later. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed, which is to speak wrong things about him. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. And the Holy Spirit can be lied to. Now, the conclusion is, since the Holy Spirit has the attributes of God and performs the actions of God and is a personal object, the only sensible thing to conclude is that he is fully divine and that he is a person, not a force, influence, or substance. Okay? All basic stuff. I know none of you have any difficulty with any of these ideas. Okay. Now, it's interesting to look at the names and representations of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. He's called one spirit, the eternal spirit, the spirit of life, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of power, the spirit of fear of the Lord of truth, of grace, and of grace and supplication. 
And then the Holy Spirit is represented by a number of figures or symbols in Scripture. We're going to go through these, and it's important to recognize that they are representations and symbols and not direct descriptions. And this is where people get into trouble, isn't it? You know, particularly some kinds of Pentecostals who would argue that the Spirit is a power, you know, the Spirit is the power of God. He's not really a person. It's an influence. The, the, the Spirit is pictured in the image of oil. When a prophet would pour oil on a king's head, what did that mean? His hair was blowing around too much? divine kingship and empowerment for that role, right? The idea was that God had provided a special ministry of the Holy Spirit to him in order to carry out that role. Okay? The Spirit is pictured as fire. And I think what's, pic- what's being described there is the holiness and the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is pictured as a dove at the baptism of Christ. What exactly does that mean? That one's a little tricky to figure out. I've put down that I think it means personal presence and aid, but that's just something I made up. Why did God use a dove? I don't really know. And and I don't know that there's anything in Scripture that will answer that question. The Spirit is actually pictured as clothing. The Lord Jesus says, you will be clothed with the Holy Spirit. And just looking at the whole idea of clothing it seems to refer to empowerment that changes the external appearance. You look like something that you wouldn't be without the Holy Spirit because you're capable of doing things that you couldn't do without the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is pictured as water. The Lord Jesus liked to do this a lot. And there I think the pictures of cleansing, the sense of sustaining life and even refreshment are being pictured. The Holy Spirit is pictured as wind. Now you all know, do you all know what the word for spirit is in Greek? It's pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. It's the word from which we get pneumatic tires. You know, um, pneumococcus, which is a bacteria in the lungs. It basically means wind or breath. That the use of that term in itself lends itself to a misunderstanding of what the Holy Spirit is. He's not just an invisible influence, although he is an invisible influence, or he produces one. What's the word that's used in the Old Testament? Um, it's probably ruach, if I'm not mistaken. Um, which it's the thing that God breathed into Adam that made him alive. I think it's the same term. It's very similar in Hebrew. Very similar. Um, And the Spirit is called a seal and a pledge. Now that one's pretty obviously a figure of speech, right? Um, I don't think any of us think that he's a piece of wax with an impression in it. Um, Again, it's important to recognize that these representations do not determine in themselves whether the Holy Spirit is a person or a power or influence or a substance. Okay. That's it on pneumatology for tonight. Now, 
Should we start eschatology and take a break in 20 minutes? You want to do that? Okay. All right, well, I'm going to shut down my computer, at least temporarily. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend the rest of the night on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. Okay? Last week in our discussion, we went through the basic argument regarding the gospel of the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus proclaimed during their ministries. And I argued that that gospel is a special gospel that was given to Israel at that time. It included a call to personal salvation, but it also included a call to the nation to meet the prophesied conditions that would have to be met in order for the Messiah to set up the promised kingdom of Old Testament prophecy and the covenants. Do you remember what the basic condition for the setting up of the kingdom was, those of you who were here last week? The nation had to repent. Okay? And I argued last week that the Sermon on the Mount, in its fundamental purpose, although it does many more things than this, was Jesus' exposition of the Old Testament law saying, don't do it the way the scribes and Pharisees do it. Do it according to what the intent of the law is, because by living in a godly fashion, according to the model that's laid out in Scripture, you will be showing God, that's supposed to go up, you will be showing God that you are serious about wanting him to set up, no, hit it twice, okay, hit up, set up, set up, not hit up, the Messianic kingdom, okay? Now, we then went and we briefly traced the flow of events, I think we saw last week, I'm not sure I got to this, but in Matthew chapter 12, when the people said, could this be the son of David? The scribes and Pharisees said, no, this is the agent of Beelzebub. And then we did not talk about the sin against the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We'll probably do that next week in our pneumatology class. Um, but I think I mentioned that Matthew 13 and the parables there basically picture what is going to happen between the time when Israel rejected Christ at his first coming and when he comes back at his second coming to establish the kingdom that they didn't want the first time. Okay? You remember all that? Okay. Now, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at Matthew 24 and 25. And I want you to think, as we do this, back to our discussion of the book of Daniel. We saw in the book of Daniel that Daniel 2 said there would be four Gentile kingdoms. Remember that? What were they? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay? And that following them, God would set up his kingdom. And that kingdom would fill the earth and would be permanently established and would never go away. 
And we saw in Daniel chapter 7, again, a description of the four Gentile kingdoms. And then there was a lot of discussion of the very last part of the fourth kingdom, in which there would be somebody called the Little Horn, who would be very blasphemous. And for three and a half times, he would persecute the saints. And yet God would intervene, declare the saints to be victors, and they would get the kingdom, and the kingdom would last forever and ever. We came to Daniel chapter 9, and in Daniel chapter 9, we're given the structure of the 77s, and we were told that there would be 69 sevens between the decree to restore and rebuild the city, which happened in 444 B.C., and the event called Messiah the Prince, which was the triumphal entry. establish the messianic kingdom. Okay. Let's start with verse 24. I'm sorry, chapter 24, verse 1. I'm going to read through the first three verses, and then I'm going to give you a breakdown. And just so you know, next week I'm going to give you what I'm giving you here um, in printed form. Okay? I finished writing the notes today, but we did not have time to print them. Okay. Chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be, sh- be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, they took a walk, walk over to the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, there are two questions there. Those questions were motivated, if you will, by Jesus' prediction that the temple would be destroyed. And it's the answers to those questions that really lead to what we call the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is Matthew 24 and 25. It's called Olivet because it was spoken on the Mount of Olives. Okay? Now look at those two questions in verse 3. When will these things be? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? 
and what will be the signs of your the sign of your coming and of the end of the age two questions now the answer to the first question was given by Jesus but it is not recorded in Matthew okay that answer is found in Luke chapter 21 verses 20 to 24 I don't know why Matthew didn't record it don't don't run over to Luke right now this will be in your notes that it's there okay if you compare Luke's account of these events and Matthew's account of these events you'll discover that neither one of them records everything that Jesus said on that day I believe the reason why Matthew didn't record the answer to the first question is that he has a great concern with the whole kingdom program and he wanted to get this down clearly for our purposes so let's look at the second question again what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age now the very fact that they said what will be the sign of your coming indicates something that they knew about Jesus's future what do they know he's going to leave right He's going to leave in order to come back. Now, you're right. Okay? They had some concept that he was going to leave. I think he had told them on a number of occasions. I don't think they knew exactly why he was leaving, but they knew that he was going to leave. Now, the way the question is asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They are equating his coming with the end of the age. Now, Jewish eschatology pictured world history in only two ages the age of waiting for Messiah and the age when Messiah is here okay we want speaking as a Jew we want the age of waiting for Messiah to be over because we know that when Messiah comes back everything's going to be fixed okay so their question is how will we know that you're going to come back and start the next age which will be the messianic kingdom and that is that question Jesus answers from verse 4 all the way down to verse 31 now let me give you a little structure here okay from verse 4 down to verse 14 what Jesus will do is he's going to survey the entire tribulation period the 70th 7 okay you'll notice at the end of verse 14 he says and then the end will come now make sure you understand that the end of which he's speaking is not the end of human history it's not the end of the universe it's the end of what it's the end of the age okay make sure you get that that's very important a lot of people miss that and starting in verse 15 down through verse 22 he's going to focus on the second half of the tribulation a time that's called a time of times and half a time in Daniel chapter 9. That's called in Daniel chapter 7. Oh, I didn't intend to rhyme. Okay, maybe that's why I did it. Um, and he will call that the great tribulation. See that in verse 21, the phrase great tribulation? Then in verse 23, really all the way down to verse 31, he's going to speak about the events that immediately anticipate and lead up to his arrival back on earth okay so you see him telescoping down verses 4 through 14 our overview of the whole 70th week verses 15 to 20 
two are an our discussion of the second half of the 70th week and from 23 down to 31 is the very last part of the 70th week. And remember the 70th week is the tribulation. So if this is seven years and remember these are prophetic years of 360 days apiece, okay? Verses 4 to 14 cover the whole thing. Verses 15 to 22 cover this. And verses 23 to 31, is it? They just cover this little bit right here. All leading up to the second coming. Now, it makes perfect sense that he structured it that way because every one of these descriptions that he gives all end in the same place, don't they? They all end at the second coming. All right? Now, let's just go forward a little bit from there. Basically, from Matthew 24, 32, all the way down to 25, 30, Jesus is going to be giving motivations to be ready for his coming. Now, obviously, the motivations that he's giving are not going to apply to the people to whom he spoke when he said these things, right? Where are they now? They're in heaven with him. Now, they didn't know when he was going to come back. So he speaks to them essentially as representatives of a future generation of believers who will be on the earth during the events that unfold in the period that he is describing here. Now, you need to keep something in mind, and in order to get this piece of information, we have to cheat and go farther forward in Scripture. Okay? The rapture had not yet been revealed to anybody at the time that Jesus spoke this. He knew about it, but it hadn't been revealed to the world in Scripture. We know, at least most of us think, and we'll argue this for this later, that the rapture will precede the beginning of the tribulation. Now, if it does, what does that mean? That means that immediately after the rapture, there are no believers on the earth. Now, we've talked before about how people are going to get saved in here. Now, the point that I'm making is what's revealed in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 31, whatever it is, is for the benefit of the generation of believers that will be on the earth during the tribulation. The disciples' question was, how will we know that you're about to come back? And he says, this is how you'll know. You'll see this sequence of signs unfolding. Okay? Now look at verse 36 in Matthew 24. This verse, unfortunately, is yanked out of context by pre-trib, pre-millennialists and absolutely butchered. Okay? Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, nor my Father only. And they use that as a proof text for the fact that nobody knows the date of the rapture. That's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Because in context, first of all, Jesus isn't talking about the rapture. And as I will show you, the rapture does not appear in this passage. Secondly, the point of verse 36 is not that it's unpredictable. The point of verse 36 is that it's highly predictable, just not down to the exact day and hour. Because the whole point of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 
is to say, I'm going to tell you the signs that are going to lead up to this so you know when it's coming. He's saying, now, you can't predict it to the day and the hour, but the verses that precede verse 36, I think it's 32 through 35, argue very strongly that you can tell that it's getting close. Bruce? I was going to say, Noah's day, he's an example of you. Perfect. The people who are watching and hearing Noah's preaching were also seeing the progress of the should have been. And the reason it didn't do them any good was not that there wasn't evidence that judgment was coming, it was that they wouldn't look at the evidence. Exactly right. And that's that's one of the reasons why Jesus is going to talk about the days of Noah. Okay? Bob. Okay. So, I have Events preceding the tribulation. Sure. I'll show you why it's not. Okay. Yes, it's it's quite common to say that four through fourteen is events that lead up to the tribulation, and the part that follows it is the tribulation, and the part that follows it is this little last bit here. I'll show you why that's not true, or at least why I believe it's not true. Okay. Let's look at verse 4. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, the end of which he is speaking, again, is what? It's the end of the age. It's the second coming. He says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, that's an important phrase, beginning of sorrows. And if you would turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, you would see that there's a prediction of the tribulation period there, and it's called the time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's sorrow. Now, what I'm going to argue is that the first half of the tribulation is the time of sorrows. And the second half is the great tribulation. And you'll see why this comes out of the passage, why this structure in time comes out of the passage in just a few moments. Okay, he goes on and says, verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Now we'll come back to verse 13 in a moment. Here's a key phrase. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, whatever period of time these verses from 4 to 14 are talking about, they go all the way up to the second coming. Now, some people would argue that they start before the beginning of the rapture. I'm sorry, before the beginning of the tribulation. I don't think they do. Now, there are two reasons why I don't think they do. The first of all is it's called the beginning of sorrows. Okay? 
And we know that the time of Israel's <laughs> sorrow is that 70th week. Okay? Secondly, what we're going to see is the second portion of this text that we haven't looked at is going to be labeled the Great Tribulation. And Jesus is going to say it starts at the midpoint when the abomination of desolation occurs. Another reason why I think this is describing the first half of the tribulation and not events that precede the tribulation is that if you look at the descriptions, famines, pestilences, plagues, etc., it seems to be very closely related to the sequence of seal judgments in the book of Revelation. Okay? Fourth reason why I think that this has to do with Israel has to do with Matthew chapter 10. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 10 with me. And we'll take our break about quarter of. That's about seven minutes from now. In Matthew chapter 10 is a fascinating and baffling chapter. This is the chapter in which after calling his 12 disciples, Jesus sends the 12 out. Luke also tells us that he sends out 72. So there were others that went out just besides the 12. And he says in verse 5, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that is the gospel of the kingdom. Remember that that expression we've talked about? Now, he will tell them that they've been given power to perform miracles. They'll come back and they'll say, We did it. It worked. They're going to be excited. Um, He will tell them, If people reject you, then move on to somebody else. And then, starting in verse 10, verse 16, he begins to describe something that never happened during his earthly ministry. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. That never happened during the time that Christ was here. It never happened to any of his disciples. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake and as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who, it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, brother, listen to this and see if this doesn't sound just like what we just read in Matthew 24. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but he who endures to the end will be saved. Do you see that? That's a major clue right there. But when they persecute you in one city, flee to another for assuredly, now catch this phrase, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now that phrase has given theologians fits for 2,000 years. That phrase has given rise to an awful lot of liberal theology. Many of you know who Schweitzer was. Schweitzer was that Christian doctor. I think he went to Africa and he came up with this theology that said that Christ was mistaken. He thought that he would establish his kingdom during his earthly ministry, and when he said these words, he expected it was going to happen, but it never happened. He blew it. Okay? 
That's obviously not true. There's no way we would ever accept that. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take in your minds the description from verse 16 down to verse 23 and transport it over to Matthew chapter 24. And what do you see? What you see is that what Jesus was anticipating in Matthew chapter 10 when he said they will deliver you up to councils and persecute you and you will not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, he's anticipating a future generation of Jews who will once again proclaim the gospel of the kingdom immediately before his second coming. It's the generation that's going to be on earth during the time of the tribulation. It will include the 144,000. Okay? I think it's more than just them. Now, notice in Matthew 24, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's the same thing he just said in Matthew chapter 10. Can you see it? The mission that they began in Matthew chapter 10 which was not completed during his life and, was, and the message of the gospel of the kingdom which was not responded to during Christ's first coming, the nation rejected him, that gospel will again be preached during the future tribulation period and those events will lead to persecution and eventually Christ will come back at the end of that seven year period of time and he will establish his kingdom. Mary. In Matthew 10? Sure, sure. Why, yeah, why did he say, I send you out? Why did he put it in Matthew 10? Basically for the same reason that he put it in Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, he doesn't say it's a future generation either. I think that what's going on is that the Lord did not want to reveal at that time how long this gap was going to be between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. You know, this is a little bit off topic, but there are some people who think that when the apostles went out in the book of Acts and first went to the Jews, in some cases, they proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom because they thought that Christ might come back very soon. Now, in reality, he didn't, right? It's been 1980 years or something since he left. Um, but I think God was doing what he often does, which is that he conceals details and he doesn't tell us exactly when things are coming because he simply wants us to be faithful to do what he's left us to do as long as he leaves us here. And he doesn't want us to say, oh man, it's just 15 years to retirement. I can start slacking off now. You know, He doesn't want us to think that way. He wants us to serve him faithfully until the moment that he comes because that will glorify him better and that will motivate us better. Bob. Just you know, looking at this, 16 through 20 really does sound like though Acts and later. Um, it sounds like it, okay? But the difference is that it didn't, what happened in the book of Acts didn't end with Christ returning. Yeah. First no. No. Right. I, I, in Matthew 10. Yeah, in Matthew 10. Yes. That sounds like. It does. It does. However, the way he describes it, 
No, notice verse 23, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. See, I think what he's really picturing here is a ministry that's uniquely to Israel. And, and that doesn't end anywhere in this description in Matthew 10. So although it's true that the apostles encountered similar persecutions to this as they brought the gospel to the world, first to Judea and to Samaria and then to the ends of the, ends of the earth, um, I don't think that what's predicted in Matthew 10 anticipates that part of the ministry. I think Matthew 10 jumps ahead to Matthew 70. Uh, I'm sorry, to, to uh, Matthew 24. And, and really what we're seeing is that in some sense, in God's mind, the first 69 sevens and the 70th seven are really joined together, aren't they? They are the time in history when God is uniquely dealing with his disobedient people in order to bring them to the point of repentance so that he can fulfill the covenant promises. So I think what he's doing in Matthew 10 is kind of jumping over this period and just anticipating theological continuity between the message that the disciples proclaimed while Christ was here on earth at his first coming and the message that a future generation will proclaim to the Jews just before Christ returns during the tribulation. Bruce. I'm thinking about Daniel chapter 11 where okay. he's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and he describes how he's going to desecrate the temple and then he shifts gears mm-hmm. and in verse 36 he starts talking about Yes. at first you think it's the same guy and then he describes the details that Boom. it didn't happen. He just jumps. Right. He jumps from past events over, you know, what is now what, 2,200 years, right. to a future time. Right. Yeah, that's a perfect example of it. I guess I'm thinking about the same thing here, where there is a sense in which these guys that are going out have opposition and persecution, mm-hmm. and so he's warning them, okay, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have this. But then he almost shifts gears and, and gives a different kind of persecution. Well, that's that's a possibility. It, it could be a heightening kind of a thing. Yeah, future. Um, I don't quite view it that way, but the hop is definitely there. Yeah, some some would argue that. And some would argue, for example, that the little horn in Daniel 8 kind of anticipates the little horn of Daniel 7, even though one is in the long past and the other is in the future. They're both similar. And the second one heightens the actions of the first one. That's a possibility. But anyway... Not to get too far off track, the reason I've gone through this thing in Matthew 10 was to answer Bob's question um, whether what we see in Matthew 24, 4 through 14 is about events during the future tribulation or events that lead up to it. Those are my reasons for arguing that it's events during the tribulation. Okay, and the last one, and I haven't hit you with this, is verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. I think that statement describes what's going to happen during the period that's described in these verses. And the only time it makes sense for the gospel of the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to be preached again, is when God is once again dealing with his people in order to bring them to repentance during the 70th week so that the kingdom can be established. Okay? It's not an airtight argument, Bob. But, but I, I, I think it's a good argument. Okay? By the way, if that is true, 
And if you are a premillennialist, that means that you shouldn't be looking at Matthew 24 and gauging the frequency of earthquakes and famines and pestilences and plagues in the world today and saying, aha, we're approaching the tribulation because it's describing events after the beginning of the tribulation, not events that lead up to it. Okay, and furthermore, I think it would be, even if it was describing events before, it would be very difficult because we have the capability now to measure and detect earthquakes and things happening all over the world that nobody had in the past and there's really no quantifiable way to compare what's happening now with what happened in the past anyway. Okay? And, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you're doing that, Bob. It's just a general thing to throw out. Because I run into lots of people who look at this and they say, this must mean the tribulation is close. But I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's about events that come after the tribulation begins, not before it begins. Okay, let's take a break.